We're going to continue our studies on Bible authority. This is the fourth lesson uh, on the subject of Bible authority, and we intend to continue that tonight and at least one more week after tonight, Lord willing. This is not, as we've said over and over again, our ideal uh, setting. As Kyle just prayed for us, uh, we long to be able to come together again in, in normal fashion. Uh, but for the time being, we continue these online special studies. And we appreciate all who are being diligent. All indications are that so many of you are being very diligent to join in on Sunday evening and also on Wednesday night during our normally appointed times. Although we're not together physically, we are able to, to have online studies and hope that that is serving as a, a form of instruction and encouragement. Thank you for being a part of it. Keep praying, as Kyle just did, that this will soon be over and we'll be able to return to normal practice. So let's talk about Bible authority again. This is our fourth lesson, as I just mentioned. And in the previous lessons, we talked about we can't establish Bible authority by ourselves. No group of human beings can do so. Our authority must come from God. We know that He speaks to us through the inspired Word and when it comes to our law for living today, the authority for what He wants us to do today, we look specifically to the New Testament. As we study our New Testaments, we know that we obtain authority through direct commands or statements, through approved examples, and through necessary inference. We've talked about those things at some length. Very important for us to understand those methodologies for establishing Bible authority. Bible authority is just basically how do we go to the Word and from the Word reap the information concerning what God wants us to do. Command, example, inference. Those are so important. Last week in our study, we talked about the difference between specific and generic authority. And just to very simply summarize that, we remember that when God has specified something, then other options are off the table. Uh, the, the great example is that of Noah in the Old Testament when God said, build thee an ark of gopher wood. When he specified gopher wood, I think all people understand that Noah's options were eliminated then. Gopher wood was necessary. No other kind would do. That's the notion of specific authority. But sometimes God just gives us general instruction. That the authority comes to us in a generic form. Uh, for instance, the example, I think the classic example of that is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go is a generic command. Lots of ways to go. And so when we have a generically authorized thing, it gives us the option to make choice to do what we think is best. And then that's sort of where expediency factors in. When we have authority to act then judgments can be employed as to how to do what God has authorized us to do. We, we, we're not given options when, to violate something specific God has authorized, but wherein, we are, wherein the methods haven't been specified, we can use expediencies. Uh, specific and generic authority and expediency. That was our study last week. Tonight we want to do something different. We, talk, we want to talk about the silence of the Scriptures. Up till now, we have been discussing uh, what the Bible tells us to do and stressing how we should interpret what the Bible actually says. 
Tonight we want to talk about what the Bible doesn't say. And someone might ask the question, how can you talk about what the Bible doesn't talk about? Well, we want to suggest to you that the silence of the Scriptures is really important. In fact, God, while God is now silent, there's something to draw from that. There, there's something for us to know. So our first point is a simple one. Uh, it's not really our main point, but a necessary consideration. God is now silent. We know that His revelation to mankind is complete. Everything he intends to say, he has already said. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all the scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We, we use this verse a lot, don't we? We know the word perfect here suggests the idea of being complete. You can be complete. You can be everything God wants you to be. You can be thoroughly furnished to all good works. If it's a good work and God intends you to be doing it, you'll find information about that in His inspired Word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He hath given, past tense, unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we're not waiting for any new revelation. There's not any additional uh, information that God is going to supply. God is now silent and His revelation is complete. And the fact of the matter is that we cannot speak the mind today of, we cannot speak the mind of God today apart from the Bible. Anybody who presumes to do so is, is taking upon themselves an impossibility. You can't know anything about the mind of God except what He has revealed in the Scriptures. Someone says, well, I just feel God wants us to be doing this or that. You can't do that. You cannot read God's mind. You don't know the mind of God except based upon what He has revealed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 9, as it it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This passage, I think, is really easy to visualize in our mind. I like especially this part where he says, What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? So, if you look at another individual, what are they thinking about when you're looking at them? Now, you might guess, you might think that you know, but when you look at another man, you don't know what he's thinking about unless he chooses to tell you. Now that's the point that Paul's making about God. You cannot know the mind of God. You can't know what he thinks unless he tells you. And, of course, he has told us. Through his Holy Spirit, he has revealed the truth. And they are spoken in words. Notice, Paul says... We speak not the words of man's wisdom, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. But notice the emphasis on words. Paul says our words are not from man. They are from the Holy Ghost. And so God speaks to us today through the inspired words. It's the only way we know what He wants us to do. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Learn not to exceed what is written. Uh, another version says, Learn not to go beyond what is written. And so, uh, it's very important. Uh, these truths uh, then would condemn anybody who thinks that they can imagine to do something more or different uh, from what the Scriptures say. Anybody who would presume to legislate laws or make rules is going beyond what is written. Okay, so what do we do then when the Bible is silent on a matter? Now, this is, this is our main focus of our study this evening. When the Bible is silent, when God has not spoken on a subject, what should we do? Well, there are really two possible views toward things that the Bible is silent about. For instance, some would say when God has not spoken, we are at liberty to act as we think best. Thus, silence gives freedom to act. The other view is where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only do those things which are authorized. Now, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously, and they've been under debate for centuries. When we go back to the Reformation movement in Europe in the 15 and 1600s, there were some who took the first view, which is a more liberal view. Martin Luther, for instance, was of this persuasion, that where God has not spoken, uh, we are at liberty to act as we think best. Silence gives freedom to act. Luther and some of the more liberal reformers had that notion. Uh, Swingley and those who were of a more conservative mindset, we think uh, they had this conservative view that said where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only do those things which are authorized. So we simply asked the question, who was right about that? Who was right about that back centuries ago during the Reformation movement, who's right today in regards to how we should view the silence of the Scriptures? Well, let's look at a couple of verses here. In 2 John verse 9, 2 John verse 9 says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Uh, the New American Standard Version says there, anyone who goes too far. The American Standard Version says, whosoever goeth onward. So uh, up here where it talks about transgressing, uh, that is the idea of going too far or going onward, going beyond what the Scriptures have to say. Now think real quickly about a couple of Examples of how some are doing that or how we might do that if we're not careful in regards to Bible authority. For instance, what about our contribution? We know that in passages like 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, it specifies that our contributions should be given on the first day of the week. So there's, there's authority. Now, we have typically, now we're not able to do it right now, but we have typically a Wednesday night Bible study where people come together. Could we pass the collection plate on Wednesday night? Well, the Scriptures are silent about that. The Scriptures do not say, they don't say do it on Wednesday night or don't do it on Wednesday night. The Bible is just silent on the idea of a contribution 
on Wednesday night. Could we do it? How should we view that then? Well, if we were to take up a collection on Wednesday night, we would be going too far. We would be going beyond what the Scriptures say to do. The Scriptures are silent. The New Testament is specifically silent on any day other than the first day of the week for making a contribution. So we don't do it. We honor the silence of the Scriptures. Uh, What about music in worship? We know that the New Testament specifies singing in worship. What about adding an instrument? We'll still sing, but we'll add an instrument. We'd be going too far. We'd be going onward. We'd be transgressing. We would not be abiding in the doctrine of Christ. And so we get the idea that if the Bible doesn't speak to it, if the Bible is silent on that, then we are not at liberty to act. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to speak only as God speaks. An oracle is a command or a revelation from God, literally an utterance of God. If we speak, let us speak as God speaks. Uh, and, and that's what we need to do. If the, if the scriptures are silent on a matter, we must remain silent. Actually, this is sort of common sense, and it's the way that we act in all walks of normal life. If you were to make an order, an online order, so I think a lot of people are doing a lot of online ordering, especially during this particular time. One of the big sites, of course, is Amazon. So you go to Amazon, they've got literally, literally millions of items for sale on Amazon.com. There's something you want. You 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 put it in in an online order, and they send it to you. But you did not have to say, now don't send me this, don't send me that, don't send me... And you don't, you don't have to list everything else they have for sale and say, don't send that. When you specify what you want, when you speak to that, and are silent on anything else, your silence speaks, doesn't it? Your silence indicates you don't want that. And so they just send you what you specified. That's just common sense. That's the way we communicate in the real world. And God has communicated with us that way too. We don't know His mind except what He has revealed. And if He hasn't revealed it to us, then we have to remain silent. And so, in regards to the two different ends of the spectrum on this question of silence, which one is right? Does silence give us liberty to act? Or does the silence mean we must be silent? We can only do the things that God has authorized. And we think clearly that this second view is the right one. We must speak where the Bible speaks. We must be silent where the Bible is silent. Uh, That slogan uh, was a very critical part of the restoration movement uh, in America uh, back in the 1800s. Some folks started thinking right. And they said... We must speak where the Bible speaks. We must be silent where the Bible is silent. And that is exactly the truth. Now, I believe that we can point out that this view is actually confirmed. This conclusion is actually verified uh, in the Scriptures. Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. Let me give you an example of this. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, the Hebrew writer, of course, was writing to... Jewish Christians, Uh, he was specifically writing to Jewish Christians who were 
really tempted to give up on Christianity and go back into Judaism. And so a lot of the, the book of Hebrews addressed to those Jews showing the superiority of the way of Christ over Judaism. He speaks to the priesthood question in chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verse 12, beginning, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So notice, there, the priesthood has been changed. Uh, he, of whom these things are spoken, talking about Jesus, he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, which, uh, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Notice, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. What did Moses, in the law of Moses, now you go back to the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, what did Moses' law say about priests from the tribe of Judah? Well, it didn't say anything about that. It said that the, the priest would come of the tribe of Levi, right? And in, in, in the tribe of Levi, from the descendants of Aaron. But Levi was the specified tribe from which priests would come. God didn't say, now, don't make priest of Reuben. Don't make priest of Gad. Don't make priest of Dan. Don't make priest of Benjamin. Specifically, as the Hebrew writer pointed, he didn't say, don't make priests out of the tribe of Judah. He didn't say that under the law of Moses. Now, Jesus is our priest. Uh, that being the case, there's obviously been a change of the law because under the old law, Jesus could not have been a priest. But our real emphasis is this, this, is this phrase right here. Of which tribe, concerning Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing. He didn't say do or don't. He didn't say anything about the tribe of Judah relative to priesthood. What do you draw from that? You draw from that that therefore when he was silent about that, it had that silence had to be observed. In chapter 8, verse 4 of Hebrews, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Jesus couldn't be a priest if he was here on earth because the earthly priest under the law of Moses came only from Levi, not any other tribe. And so then we conclude that the silence of the scriptures must be respected. Do you get that? That's actually a, a pretty straightforward observation. I think, again, Normal ways of communicating indicate that we should interpret the message of God that way. It is the way we speak. It's what words mean. And God has used words to convey his mind to us. Where he is silent, we must be silent. All right, now, we want to, we want to tackle one other question in our study tonight. And that is the questions, the question about examples. And we want to say that it's possible to determine when New Testament examples are binding upon us. As we've said earlier in our previous study, now this actually, we're doing two things tonight. One is the silence question. Two is the question of when are examples binding. So we're actually changing, changing gears now and taking on a second topic for consideration in our lesson tonight. How can we determine when examples are binding? We, we said 
in our previous lessons, we summarized again tonight, commander exa- uh, command or statement, direct command or statement, approved examples, necessary inference. Those are the three ways that we establish New Testament authority. We've mentioned previously that the idea of example is under attack. Some people say we cannot use examples for authority. We, 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 we should not use examples as authority for our action today. We say that we can and should, and, I, and yet even within that broader understanding, we, we need to understand when do we see a binding example and when are some of the examples which offer not binding So this is a second question for consideration in our study tonight. First of all, let's just point out that the scriptures do teach by example. uh, That we are authorized by virtue of approved example. If I had to choose one verse to stress this, I might choose Philippians 4 verse 9. Paul says, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Emphasis this phrase right here. Do what you've seen me do. Here's Paul, an inspired apostle. And he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, the example that I have set, you do that. And so here's a very plain, actually kind of interestingly here, what we have here is a command to observe examples. See that? So if you think you need a command, well, here's a command. Here's a command to follow approved examples. So, yes, the scriptures do teach by example. But the the question arises, which examples? For instance, in Acts chapter 20, we very often use Acts chapter 20 when we're talking about observing the Lord's Supper. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul traveled to the city of Troas by ship. He met with the disciples on the first day of the week and observed the Lord's Supper. He preached till midnight and they worshipped in an upper chamber. Now, we focus in on one aspect of that. They met on the first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper in verse 7. Well, how do we know we should accept that part of what happened in the text but not observe others. For instance, why don't we travel by sailing ships? Why don't, why don't we continue our services till midnight? What if the preacher continued preaching all the way to midnight today? People go, oh, wow, that's way too much. Why do we not do that? Why do we not say it's absolutely necessary for preachers to continue their preaching till midnight? Why do we not insist on the assemblies for observing the Lord's Supper to take place in a second story or upper chamber of a building? Why don't we do that? So that's the question. Uh, The question is, how can we know which examples are binding and which are not? Now, here's the key word. Which are binding? Which are not binding? We want to suggest to you that there's three possible views to that question. First of all, all examples are binding. Secondly, no examples are binding. Thirdly, some examples are binding and others are incidental. And I want to suggest to you that that third view is the right one. We know that all examples are not binding because we see some examples that are not to be imitated. Maybe a 
quick example is in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. There are a couple of Christians who lied and were punished for doing so. Don't follow that example. There are, even apostles conducted themselves wrong in, wrongly in some ways. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, as we've mentioned, the apostle Peter was guilty of hypocritical treatment of the Gentiles and Paul confronted him. He said he was to be blamed in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 2. So there's an example, but it's not a proper example. We know that not all examples are binding. And yet we said up here, the scriptures do teach by example. But not all examples, because not all are approved examples. We know that this is the idea that there are no binding examples is wrong because, as we said there in Philippians 4, Paul said, do what you saw me do. And so I really think by process of elimination, the only alternative we have is to say that some examples are binding and others are not. But the question here is, how do we know? How do we know which examples are binding and which are not? Let me suggest to you some rules of biblical interpretation that will help us make that determination. Again, the conclusion we're making, the right one, I believe, is that some examples are binding, others are just incidental to what was taking place. And we must observe the concepts of, first of all, harmony. Um, the actions of any example must be consistent with other undoubted scriptural teaching in order for the recorded example to be considered as binding. In other words, the scriptures don't contradict themselves. And therefore, before you could say that the example in any given text is a binding example, it would have to harmonize with what else we know the scriptures say to do. Go back to that example of the Apostle Peter in Galatians 2. He showed preferential treatment against the Gentiles in Antioch. Now, should we do that? Should we show preferential treatment uh, to people? Well, no, if we did, that would, be in, would not be in harmony. It would be in contradiction with other things the Bible plainly teaches. For instance, in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Verse 9 of James 2, If ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin, or are convinced of the law as transgressors. And so we would say, that example of Peter in Galatians 2, of course the text actually says he was to be blamed, but that could never have been a binding example to act with preferential treatment against one class of people and toward another class of people because that would contradict, make the, the scriptures contradict themselves. And so the idea of harmony, uh, we, we could say it this way. An example should never be considered binding when the example or action is in conflict with statements of expressed command, necessary inference, or other examples. And so there has to be harmony. And if, if, if binding this particular example would cause a contradiction, it can't be that way because the scriptures don't contradict themselves. Furthermore, we know that the rule of uniformity must be applied. And what we mean here is that uniformity and essential details has to be present in any example for the action involved to be considered binding. In other words, if in the same sort of a situation different actions are taken, then neither one of those actions or examples could be considered as binding. Uh, maybe take, for example, the, the, the place of worship. 
what kind of a place should we worship in? Well, we know, for instance, when the church first began, they met in the very big public place of the temple in Jerusalem. But in other instances, we know we, they met in smaller, much smaller settings in private homes. So neither one of those examples could be considered binding because there's not uniformity here in the example. See that? Now, take another case. What about baptism? If we were just going to look at baptism from the question of how was it done, what kind of examples of baptism do we see? In every instance, we see baptism being a burial. There is a pattern there. We know that we we know we can come at that in different ways, also. But the the consistent, the consistent, uniform example of baptism is immersion in water. And so, again, if a, if an example is to be binding, it must have uniform presence in all examples so it has to it has to harmonize an example has to harmonize with what else the the scriptures teach the example has to be uniformly carried out in every case we know also that a a simple rule that we might apply here is the idea of universal application now these are i don't understand i wouldn't want anybody to be upset or quibble with us these are just terms we're using terms that apply to how we interpret scriptures. These are our terms. These are not biblical terms. But I'm just saying, here's the rules of proper reason and logic that we would use to approach this question. How do we know which examples are binding and which are just incidental to the account being offered? Let me suggest the idea of universal application. Our principle here is that no example is to be regarded as binding when it cannot be universally applied. Uh, Verses like Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. And so the things necessary for us to do to be saved are applicable to all men. All men can can do the things that are required of God. And so, so the, the, whatever the scriptures require of us have to be something that all men are capable of doing. Uh, its requirements can be met. The scriptures' requirements can be met by all men of all time. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, it says, There is no respect of persons with God. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, at verse 34, Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of person, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now, that being the case, then whatever we're expected to do is something that men everywhere can do. Men of all times and all places can do what's required of God because he's no respecter of persons. Now, think about that for a minute. Think of that in, in application to the Lord's Supper. Remember we said earlier when Paul was at Troas observing the Lord's Supper, he traveled there by sailing ship. Well, not everybody can travel by sailing ship. We certainly can't do that in Middle Tennessee. How would we have come to the place where we're going to observe the Lord's... And, and, we, and in order for it to be a legitimate observance of the Lord's Supper, we had to get here by sailing ship. We couldn't do it. And so that would make it impossible for us to do what God expects us to do. See, there would be no 
opportunity for universal application in regards to that. We might all, we, in that example of the Lord's Supper, we, we know there in Acts 20 that they met in a second story or upper chamber of a, of a, of a house or a building. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody has access to an upper chamber. Therefore, we would say the, the, the common sense rule of universal application says that could not be a required part of the example. That's just incidental. The sailing ship and the upper chamber in Acts chapter 20 are just incidental to the account being offered. They are not binding examples. And then finally we would suggest that there's a rule that we might, using our terminology, a rule we might call legitimate extension. By legitimate extension, what we mean is that no New Testament example can be considered as binding in situations other than those that are specifically set forth in the New Testament record of the action. Just recently, in our Wednesday night studies uh, in the book of Acts, In Acts chapter 2, we know when those Christians obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost, just almost immediately, they started selling their property and having all things in common. Acts 2, I I want to remind you, and I hope you all remember, because this has just been within the last couple of weeks that we talked about this in our Wednesday night study. But remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, among the new Christians in Jerusalem, all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Well, obviously there, uh, they lived in a sort of communal way. Uh, They had all things in common. Is that a binding example for us today? And in our study, I think just this last Wednesday night, we pointed out that no, that's not the case. Uh, In our study on Wednesday night, I believe Monty pointed out in Acts chapter 5, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter said to Ananias, who had lied about his gift, he said, whilst it remained, was this is Acts 5 verse 4, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Peter said, you didn't have to give everything you, you had. This was your choice. The problem was you lied about it, right? And we further pointed out that... Uh, Other places in the New Testament suggest the idea that Christians still maintain personal wealth and possessions. The the, the situation in Acts was a great need because of a specific circumstance and the Christians met that great need in that specific circumstance by selling their property and contributing the goods. We cannot extend that beyond that sort of a circumstance. If that sort of a circumstance arose again, we could apply that example. But we can't apply that example in situations other than the specific circumstance in which it was stated. So, harmony, uniformity, universal extension, or universal application rather, and legitimate extension. And I want to stress again, because I've had instances where people have, where do you read about, where do you read those terms in the New Testament? We don't read those terms in the New Testament. We're just using that terminology to describe the kind of reasoning and logic that God expects us to use when we study His Word. These would be the principles that, these would be the kind of logical principles that we would apply to determine when an example is binding. Because as we said, not all are binding, but some are. Therefore, some examples are binding and others are incidental and we need to use our 
good sense uh, to understand the scriptures as to when we have a binding example. All right, that's our study for tonight. Again, we think this study of Bible authority is so very important. Uh, and we've been building on that for the last four weeks. This concludes lesson four in this series on Bible authority that we've been doing on Sunday evening. We thank you all for watching online tonight and hope that it's been helpful. This is not new information for most of us. This is very much review information for lots of us. But these are the kind of things that have to be repeatedly taught. We need to be reminded of it. Our young people need to be well grounded in it. New Christians need to be established in this kind of uh, information. And so it's important for us to go over these things very often. And we appreciate your interest in doing so. Thanks for being online tonight. Normally at the end of the lesson, we would sing a song of invitation and invite everyone to make sure your life is right with God. Obviously, we can't do that tonight. But as we've been saying every week, you can certainly reach out to us. Give us a phone call. Let us know if you need our special assistance spiritually. If you desire to obey the gospel, by all means, please let us know. If you want to study more about what one must do to be saved, certainly give a call so that we can study. We can study remotely if that's what's required. But we can study together so you can know what you must do to be saved. If you desire to obey the gospel, let us know. If you're a Christian and you're in need of our special spiritual help with prayers and so forth, just let us know. We're as close as a phone call away.